0: Scripture lesson for this morning comes from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul speaking to us. So listen now for God's word to you. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter is a little bit of a mixed bag for me. Um, Any of you who have been in one of my Bible studies have heard me say that before. Um, I think there are times where Paul gets things really, really right. Um, So for example, Paul is the one who was unequivocating and uncompromising in his view and advocacy that Gentiles or non-Jewish people could be included in the life of the church without having to first become Jewish, without having to first conform to everybody else. Um, He really spoke strongly about that throughout his letters, one of the biggest advocates for that. Uh, Paul was also someone who had this sort of grand vision of what is possible, of Christian hope, of all things being reconciled together in Christ. And he sort of draws us in and captivates us with that vision and Paul, of course, was a pastor, too. and He dealt with churches who were going through significant conflicts, uh, because conflict is as old as the church itself, it's as old as the New Testament, right? And, and Paul walked with them through those things. So there are times where Paul, for me, gets things really, really right. But then there are times where Paul says things that I wish Paul hadn't said, um, things about women or things about the, the LGBTQ community, things that we don't uh, that he wouldn't have known in his own context, but um, and Paul seemed to have a lot of hang-ups about human sexuality just in general. Um, I kind of wish Paul had a, access to a good therapist to work through some of those issues, um, but none of these things that I find problematic in Paul were really key cornerstone pieces of his theology. The problem for me is that people have really gravitated and grabbed onto those small parts of the things that he said and have kind of taken them as the inerrant word of God that has to be held for all time and all places. So uh, there are times where Paul gets it really right, and there are times where Paul says things that I wish Paul hadn't said. Uh, But this is one of those instances where I think Paul gets things really, really right. Uh, What can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ, Paul asks? Can hardship or disease or famine or distress Paul asks this sort of rhetorically before answering his own question. He says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. To me, these are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Words, I think, that should be hung as artwork in our homes and in our churches, a constant reminder of God's unconditional love. That there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. And it is, as beautiful as those words are, those words, I think, are even more necessary. They are an answer already to that question for today, that burning question, is God mad at me? Um, as Alan said this morning, I sure hope not. Um, is God mad at me? That's our, our burning question for today. I think the, the fact that Paul speaks about it, um, uh, speaks these words to us in Romans, indicate the sort of ancient anxiety that we as human beings have lived with since the beginning of humankind. This concern, this worry, this anxiety about whether or not God or the gods, depending on the society and the context you lived in, were angry with us. Um, That whole systems, whole temples and priesthoods and rituals of sacrifice were developed as ways of sort of appeasing the gods. I know some of you remember back in your days in grade school, learning about the Greek myths, Greek mythology, which is incredibly fun, right? It reads like an ancient soap opera. Um, the gods are incredibly fickle and thin-skinned and constantly in need of being appeased. We have that. We have, um, there's evidence of the Tigris and Euphrates region, the very cradle of civilization, of um, human sacrifices that were offered connected with fertility rites as a way of guaranteeing the harvest. Um, same thing in the in ancient Egypt along the Nile Basin. There um, evidence of human sacrifices in order to appease the gods, so that the Nile Basin would flood, creating this fertile place um, to harvest crops. So this concern, this worry that if the gods are a- are are angry with us, that we won't have enough to eat, that there won't be a harvest, that we won't have children, and of course, um, and of course we can't deny the fact that the ancient Israelites also had developed this complex system of sacrifices. Um, A lot of them were ways of honoring and worshiping God, but we also can't deny the fact that some of that reflects, I think, that anxiety, that concern that if we don't sacrifice to God, then God isn't going to be happy with us, that God might be angry with us. Now, this ancient anxiety has not gone away. It has continued to find its way into the modern world. It's found its way, even into Christianity itself. Um, so when I graduated from college, I was a member of an Episcopal church for a few years, and I loved that congregation. It was um, a progressive congregation in a lot of ways that Greenfield is. Um, it was one of those churches that really formed and helped shape me into who I am. And, and yet, every time we celebrated communion during what was known as the Right One service, uh, which is like the old prayer book, before we would receive communion, we would all say together in unison, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Um, The sort of sense of unworthiness and God's anger. This this is not meant to knock the Episcopal Church. I I love that denomination. but sort of this reflection of this anxiety that God is angry with us. Or some of the ways that the the Jesus story is told, is told sort of couched in this in, in God's anger, at least the way that I was taught growing up, and some of the, 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 the loudest people in our soundbite culture, the st- way the Jesus story is told is that, is that God was so angry with the world, so angry at human sin, that God had to send Jesus into the world as a place to unleash all of that wrath and that anger. Uh, one of the hymns we sang growing up is On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Um, and some of the ways that I was taught growing up, yeah, their eyes are getting big. <laughs> I'm guessing that wasn't the story that you were told growing up. Um, some of the things that I was told growing up, too, is that I was in some way responsible for that death, that I had held the the, the nails there, so to speak. Another hymn we sang growing up is that, um, oh, what was the hymn? Um, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So this taking on the guilt of Jesus' death. And I wasn't a bad kid, right? I was really conscientious. But you can see how that creates a sort of anxiety, right? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, exactly. Still does. <laughs> Still does. <laughs> it cre- it, so it ref- you can see how that might create some sense of anxiety, right? That God is angry with us. Um, I remember in, in American literature when I was in high school, learning about the first great awakening. And one of what's considered one of the great sermons from that era by a man named Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and if you haven't read it, don't read it. Um, <laughs> it's, um, Jonathan Edwards in there says that we are sort of like, that God holds us like a spider over the fire, um, that God is angry with us. Does it any wonder that we have this anxiety if this is the sort of ways that our theology is crafted? Um, I remember walking back from the, the school bus one day, with my closest childhood friend, and I sneezed, and he said, God bless you. And I said, he already has. And he goes, well, how do you know that? We all have anxiety. He was a Muslim. We all have anxiety, right, about God being angry with us. And I and I remember my grandmother when she was, I think, 94, 95. Um, I shared this story with you before. It ended up being a really cute story, but she was looking around the house trying to find her baptismal certificate. She hadn't been feeling well. She was worried that that her death was imminent. And so she'd been looking for her baptismal certificate and couldn't find any evidence anywhere that she had been baptized. And so she required, forced my dad, her youngest son, who was a pastor at the time, to re-baptize her, uh, even though that she had been a a faithful member of her congregation for decades. And really, I, I understand the anxiety that death can produce, this wanting to know that we're in, good with God. But is that really what God's up to? That before we enter into, into eternity, we have to have our baptismal certificate with us, our hall paths to get into heaven, so to speak. And of course, I'll, I'll never forget the uh, summer I spent as a, a student chaplain, the summer between my um, second and final year in seminary, um, that I was assigned to the geriatric care floor and also to the ICU, which is where my wife worked, which made things interesting. Um, we often saw a lot of the same patients. And so, um, you know, I would go around and I would knock on doors to these rooms in the hospital and say, I introduce myself. Hi, I'm Anders. I'm one of the chaplains here. And their eyes would get big, concerned. Why is the chaplain here? What's happening? But as soon as they realized I wasn't there to deliver bad news, I was just there to talk. Some of them would politely decline, others not so politely. Um, and then some would let me sit and they would let me talk with them. Um, And those conversations have left an impact, an imprint on my mind. I I will never forget so many of those conversations. Uh, Like the one woman I was sitting with who was on the geriatric floor, she had a a significant leg injury, she was waiting to go to rehab, and we sat and we talked for a little while, but then she just started, she broke down out of nowhere, started to, to cry, and she asked me, why is God doing this to me? Before I could even answer with all of my seminary knowledge I had accrued. She said she, she figured out why God was doing this to her she said it's because it must be because I had that abortion 20 years ago God's angry with me what a what a difficult thing to live with a difficult reality a way to frame things but God is mad at you for a decision that you made all of those years before um, and there was another woman who will forever if, until the day I die I will remember her um, I saw her multiple times a week during the uh, 11-week internship that I was there for, and she had myriad health issues going on. She had end-stage COPD, end-stage congestive heart failure, and stage four lung cancer all at the same time. Um, And she kept fighting and fighting and fighting. She uh, she had been coded and brought back four times just in the three months that I was there. Um, I sat and talked with her quite a bit during my time there. And I remember in what ended up being our final conversation, um, she asked me if I thought that God would be angry with her if she decided she didn't want to keep fighting anymore. And I said to her, no, I don't think God would be angry with you. I think that God would understand. You have been fighting and fighting and fighting. And then I shared with her the words that I shared almost every funeral I preside at. And if you've been at one of the recent funerals, you've heard me say this. It comes from uh, the Presbyterian Book of Confessions. It says, in life and in death, we belong to God. In life and in death, we belong to God. I shared that with her. I said that God has been with you every step of the way. God has been with you with every trial and tribulation you faced here in the hospital. And when your life finally does end, you're still held in God's love. You know, I often, I often wondered what my my job was, what I was doing in the hospital. It felt so trivial sometimes, sitting here and having conversations with people as Um, There were doctors and nurses, one of whom was my wife, and aides and and social workers, all taking part in the process of healing somebody's body. Even the the food service workers were doing something tangible. And I'm wondering, what in the world am I doing here in the hospital? Um, But as I reflect on those conversations, I realize just how many folks are living with this idea that God is angry with them. And if I could somehow alleviate Just a little bit of that. That was a conversation that was worth having. Is God angry with us? It's a question I think that we all sort of live with, even if it's under the surface a little bit, wondering about God's anger, God's favor towards us. And that's when Paul's words come to us, I think, like a healing balm. What can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ? Can hardship or trial or famine or distress, can all any of that separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ? And that's when Paul says, I am convinced. Do you notice that? I am convinced. Paul is convinced of this fact that there is nothing in all of creation, not height, not depth, not things present, not things to come, not hardship, not the things that we've done wrong, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. Not a single thing, Paul says. What I've learned is that the good news is not that God was so angry with the world that he poured out his anger on Jesus instead of on us. What I found is that God so loved the world that God walks the whole way to the cross. That even in that darkest of moments in human history, that even that couldn't separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. The good news I've found is that in moments of trial and tribulation, that there is God walking alongside of us all along the way. That in those moments where we find ourselves unacceptable or unworthy, where we're dwelling on the mistakes and the shortcomings of the past, there is God's love for us. There is nothing Not a single thing that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. And I think that it is high time for all of us to dispel with that image of the angry and vengeful God, to to tear down the idol of the vindictive God who's always out to punish us, who we have to, to walk around on eggshells around. Instead, learn to dwell more fully within that God of love and grace in whom nothing can separate us from that love. Uh, there's a theologian uh, named Paul Tillich, one of the 20th century's greatest theologians, another Paul for you. Um, and he uh, he wrote these this beautiful quote that I want to read for you. It comes from his uh, book, Shaking the Foundations. It's a little bit long, but I want you to kind of hear it um, in all of its, I think, power. So I'm going to try to read this as deliberately as I can so that you all can dwell a little bit in these words. He says... That grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved or from which we are estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year, the longed-for perfection of life does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will, you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before, and we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin, and reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement, and nothing is demanded of this experience, no religious or moral or intellectual presupposition, nothing but acceptance. Accept that you are accepted. Accept that you are loved, accept that you are worthy, accept that there is nothing in this life or on the horizon of our lives that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. The simple truth of the gospel, the simplest truth, but also the hardest truth, is that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. We are always held within the love of God, and nothing can separate us from that love. So the Christian life, I think, is learning how to more fully accept that we are accepted. It is learning how to more fully accept that we are loved, to accept that we are worthy. It is to dwell within that realm of grace, to become more and more convinced, just as the Apostle Paul was, that there is nothing, not a single thing that can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ. Thanks be to God.